Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Tom Palmer, and it's my pleasure to join our President Peter, uh, still new president, Cato's third in the history of this great institution, in welcoming you to this 2015 Cato University Summer Seminar on Political Economy. Uh, just by way of why I'm up here, I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. In my spare time, I'm executive vice president for international programs of the Atlas Network. And then also at Cato, I direct this Cato University. I've had the great pleasure of being involved in Cato's summer seminars since the very first ones we held in the summer of 1978. Uh, in the meantime, I went off and did a bunch of other things and then came back to Cato in 1975. Now, there have been a lot of changes since then, some obviously driven by technology, but the continuity of themes and styles has been remarkably constant. You might even think that the ideas of liberty are somehow eternal or unchanging or universal. I mean, think about it, 1978. It was before cell phones. It was before the internet. It was before the Hundred Year War between the Clinton and Bush dynasties. <laughs> I mean, it was that long ago. Now, last year, we held Cato University out on the west coast at the Rancho Bernardo Inn near San Diego. This year we're back in the Freedom Headquarters here in Washington, D.C. Back in 1978, Cato was headquartered in lovely little office suite in the rather less humid city of San Francisco. And we did not imagine at that time there would be such a well-equipped Freedom Headquarters in Washington, D.C. where people are working every day full-time developing and applying and representing and advancing our libertarian ideas and values. Now, Cato University is a fairly small part of the work of the Cato Institute. Cato produces thousands of products, over 550 events every year, and I have to say our conference staff, I think you've gotten a sense of how incredibly efficient, hardworking they are, 550 events. <clears throat> but also books, research papers, testimony before Congress and regulatory bodies, media appearances, debates, newspaper and journal articles, briefings, public lectures, videos, podcasts, many conferences on monetary policy, the Constitution, property rights, criminal law, and so on, filings before the Supreme Court, and lots, lots more. And all that work is based on sound analysis, well-checked empirical evidence, and you can all find it at Cato.org, as well as Cato's other websites, downsizinggovernment.org and policemisconduct.net and others. So it's a small part, but it's a really important part because it is central to Cato's approach to public policy. Now, most people may know the Cato Institute. You go out on the street and ask people about Cato. Uh, they know it offers some coherent, systematic, and thorough program of objective analysis of policies, scholarly research, blogs, op-eds, and all that sort of thing. But analysis and opinions and proposals are rooted in principles, even when they are not acknowledged. And that's a very important point. Quite often I meet other people that say, well, we just do objective public policy research. That's all we do. And I think that's a mistake. They're fooling themselves. Because even the questions that you ask tells me a lot about your principles. What do you think is important? Why did you frame the question in that way? And at Cato, we think it's more honest and helps us to do better work to be honest about what our principles are, not smuggling them in as common background assumptions or what everybody uh, on the talk shows believes, but putting them up front. We think that these principles are coherent, they are worthy of being defended. Those principles of individual liberty, of personal responsibility, limited government, of peace, of toleration, of non-coercive behavior, and of justly acquired property and free exchange. So that's why Cato does the things that we're mainly known for, commenting on public policy and analyzing the effects of public policies, but also promoting our principles libertarianism.org is a great website. It's got all kinds of great stuff on it, and I hope that you visit. There's a lot of material there you can't get anywhere else. Now, to understand, again, what Cato is about, go back to those distant, distant 
days of the past when Cato was founded, way, 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 way back to the 1970s, before many of the people in this room were born, when the idea of limited government was considered eccentric, off the wall, a little kooky, loony. I mean, what sort of person would actually favor allowing people to keep what they earn and smoking what they want? I mean, why would you not want to arrest people for homeschooling their own children and their own religious values and arresting people for holding hands with someone of the same gender? I mean, come on, how crazy is that? You can't tolerate everything that's peaceful. You should only tolerate the things you like. That's what real freedom is about and real toleration. It's tolerating the things you like, not the things that you don't like. We should also remember how far we've come. We had price controls on every single thing sold in this country. Everything had a government determined price. And people were put in prison for raising the prices of their products. We had government set prices for traveling on airplanes, for sending a shipment of oranges from Florida to Minnesota and sending back a shipment of apples from Minnesota to Florida that had to be approved in each case, licensed, and the price determined by the government. We, of course, had the horrors of the Vietnam War and the war in Cambodia. We had gigantic new government programs, and not many people were complaining about it in a systematic or principled way. There were some libertarians, but we were considered kind of on the edge. Well, the edge has moved very, very far in our direction uh, in the intervening years. A lot of the ideas that we promoted back then that were considered wild and crazy are now considered popular, mainstream, and just obvious to lots of people. And that's worth remembering whenever you're dismayed about, uh, we're losing on this, and how could people think that, to think how much change there has been in the course of our lifetimes. I gave a talk recently in... Uh, 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 Brisbane, Australia, and it was a youngish group. Most of the people there were in college or recently out of college. And I got all these questions that were very depressed. Oh, we're fighting this and this and this. And, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? And it just dawned on me in the course of that this question, I realized I have been working for legalizing marijuana for 42 years. In 1973, in college, I set up a libertarian club and we campaigned for legalization of marijuana. In our club, not a single member smoked it because they're all nerdy libertarians. <laughs> the other club that opposed us was full of kids that I knew smoked pot. <laughs> so we lost that. We lost in the ballot initiative, but we are now winning. We are now winning all around the country. The country has changed. And when I thought about it, I thought it was worth it. Because if one person doesn't get arrested and hauled off to prison, and that person's life is ruined because they owned a plant, then it was worth the 42 years to do that. In the mid-1970s, a group of academics and business people decided there needed to be an institution to make the case for liberty systematically and professionally and clearly. Examining how the world actually works, looking at facts rather than entertaining ideological fantasies, revealing not only what is seen, the government program we see and the beneficiaries we see, but what is not seen, the cost, the things that didn't happen because that was done and the hidden victims, the ones who paid the price or lost their livelihood as a consequence. We wanted to promote reality-based analysis rather than starting from the common assumption of a government that is all-wise, all-knowing, and totally benevolent. And that was the guiding principle of public policy. That was the assumption. There's market failure, government will fix it because government is always benevolent-wise and they know more things than we do. We wanted an institution that would formulate feasible, just, and constitutionally sound public policy proposals and put them on the menu for policymakers. And the Cato Institute was the result.
It was set up in 1977 with the following mission, to increase the understanding of public policies based on the principles of limited government, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. The Institute will use the most effective means to originate, advocate, promote, and disseminate applicable policy proposals that create free, open, and civil societies in the United States and throughout the world. And a couple of years ago, the board and uh, members of the staff got together and after a lot of discussion and workshops and debate, shortened it down a bit more direct. The mission of the Cato Institute is to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now the name of the Cato Institute deserves a moment's explanation. The founder, beloved founder of the Institute, Ed Crane, always insisted it stood for Crane and the others. Uh, <clears throat> some have thought it was the Central Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was New Jersey, Portugal, and the Canary Islands. Uh, but actually, it refers very indirectly to a Roman statesman, Cato the Younger. Uh, <clears throat> he set a high standard uh, for liberty by committing suicide in the year 46 BC in Utica. This has been one strategy for liberty, not one I recommend. <laughs> but it was important in his case because he was remembered for this. He was famous for his insistence on the rule of law, on the Constitution, and the dangers of centralizing power in the hands of one person. He imposed the ambitions to total power of both Caesar and Pompey, the rivals for power at the time. The historian Plutarch wrote in his life of Cato the Younger, by the way, there are two Catos. There's Cato the Elder and Cato the Younger. They often get confused. They're different people. So sometimes they get confused by, oh, New York Times writers and so on. Uh, but Cato the Younger, uh, Plutarch concluded, he said, he was the only free and undefeated man. He was an inspiration to those who favored a Republican form of government, not to be confused with the party of that name, but the belief in a republic rather than an empire or a kingdom that was under law and was preferable to arbitrary and unaccountable personal power. The Roman poet Lucan was commissioned by the Emperor Nero to write a great poem known to the ages as the Pharsalia on the civil wars in Rome. And it was to be a celebration of the imperial or Caesarian cause and a celebration of the destruction of the Republic. <clears throat> Lucan in the course of writing it and researching it and thinking about it, wrote a very different poem. It was a poem in praise of republicanism. And the hero was not Caesar and his heirs who destroyed the republic. It was Cato the Younger who fought to preserve it. When he described the conflict between Caesar and Pompey for preeminence and ripped the republic apart, he wrote, think about this. Who more justly took up weapons is forbidden knowledge. Each has on his side a great authority, the conquering cause, the gods, the conquered Cato. So Cato was right, although the other side had the gods with them and triumphed. It is believed that those were the words that caused his proscription by the emperor Nero, who had commissioned the work. At the age of 25, Lucan was forced to commit suicide. Dante also talks about Cato the Younger, and the Divine Comedy, he places him at the gates of purgatory. He was denied the heavenly vision as a pagan, but because of his virtue, he was without punishment. Dante and his guide, the Roman poet Virgil, enter from hell to purgatory, or out of purgatory. And the old man, Cato the Younger, demands to know how they did that. Virgil responded, and he defended Dante's right to pass, saying, Look kindly on his coming, if you will. He goes in search of liberty. All know who gave their life for that, how dear it is. You know yourself, for dying in that cause, death had Utica no sting for you. Your mortal robe on judgment day will shine. Now, Cato's memory has lasted for over two millennia and it continues in the Cato Institute. 
But was the Cato Institute named directly because of Cato the Younger or Lucan's poem? Well, not quite. It's named after his legacy, though, his heroic defense of the Constitution. <clears throat> Cato the Younger was presented to European audiences by the English writer Joseph Addison. In 1713, he wrote a play, Cato, a Tragedy, that was performed to great acclaim in London. It was... Imagine every musical, spectacle, Star Wars, all in one. It was the big talk of London. It was translated into many European languages and performed all over Europe, as well as in the colonies of North America. It was George Washington's favorite play. He had the play before, performed before the beleaguered American soldiers at Valley Forge in 1778 during that terrible winter. He staged the play before cold and hungry troops to rally their spirit to fight on, regardless of the odds. Cato's son states in the first act of Addison's play, "'Tis not in mortals to command success, but we'll do more, Sempronius, we'll deserve it." And Washington was determined that this army would deserve victory. Indeed, years before, when he was 26 years old, Washington in the French and Indian Wars, wrote home, I should think my time more agreeably spent, believe me, in playing a part in Cato. There's no question in my mind that Cato had a big impact, or this, this image of Cato, on George Washington himself, whom I consider one of the greatest of the early Americans. <clears throat> America was very fortunate that their first president was George Washington and not Hosni Mubarak or <laughs> someone like that, man who stepped down voluntarily uh, from office. And that really set the Republic on the right tone, and it was because of that Republican virtue. Many of the most famous phrases of the American Revolution, the War for Independence, were cribbed from or inspired by Addison's play. Patrick Henry's famous lines from the speech of March 23, 1775, at the St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, echoed the words of Cato in the play as he addressed the young prince Juba. Cato says, remember the hand of fate is over us and heaven exacts severity from all our thoughts. It is not now a time to talk of aught but chains or conquest, liberty or death. And it was quite clear that Patrick Henry had that in mind when he gave that famous speech. But there's one more step to the Cato Institute. <clears throat> Edison's play inspired two radical we could say proto-libertarian writers in London, John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, who wrote a whole series of newspaper articles, columns, if you will, and they used the pseudonym Cato. <clears throat> it was common at the time to write under pseudonyms. It meant you were less likely to be arrested. And this one came with a famous name, someone who resisted tyranny and had the aura of this great play that was the talk of London for so long. They wrote 144 articles and uh, put them together. They were popularizations of, let's say, proto-libertarian ideas that would have been associated with figures such as the Levelers, Lilburn, Overton, Walwyn, John Locke, and Algernon Sidney. They were collected together and published as Cato's Letters. You can still get them in print today. And along with the play Cato, they were extremely important in the political education of those who were to formulate the principles of the American Revolution. Bernard Balin, the great American historian, noted in his book on the origins of American politics, he said, so influential was Cato's letters in the colonies, so packed with ideological meaning, that reinforced by Edison's universally popular play, Cato, and the colonists' selectively Whiggish reading of the Roman historians, it gave rise to what might be called a, a catonic image, personifying the whole of opposition thought in which the career of the half-mythological Roman and the words of the two London journalists merged indistinguishably. And you do find in letters among the founders, they say, as Cato has shown, as Cato has proven, as Cato has stated. And there they're thinking of Cato's letters, but it's Cato the statesman that somehow they have in their minds. And those principles that were identified with Cato were written into the Declaration of Independence, the various state constitutions, the Articles of Confederation, in the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And because of the scholarship of Balin and others showing the importance of Cato's letters, the Cato Institute was named after them, because they do what Cato's letters did, 
They explain in clear, plain language the principles of liberty that any intelligent person can understand, and then they apply them to the particular issues of the day, which is what Cato's letters did. That's essentially the mission of the Cato Institute. So Cato doesn't just produce research or promote good government. <clears throat> we refer, refer to such people as goo-goos here, people who believe in just good government. We're for good government, but we're for limited government, which we think <coughs> is good government. But to connect those policies to our core principles, now, among the things that distinguishes us is a question. And as I mentioned, the questions you ask tells me a lot about the principles. And this question is not popular in Washington. I can tell you from personal experience. It's considered rude. It's out of place, coarse, and undignified. If you ask it, you will see noses wrinkle in disgust that you ask such a question. It's a conversation stopper. It is a don't invite him again to the party question. <clears throat> it is. Is this proposed or currently exercised power authorized in the legal document that founds this republic? <laughs> Specifically, the Constitution of the United States of America. And when they say, well, in the Constitution it says X and Y, I love to carry these around. I say, really? Would you show me where? <laughs> Just, it's, it's right here. It's a little thing. Just show me where. It's in. This is immensely embarrassing to most people. And it's a question that's not only rude, it was laughed at and scoffed at. But thanks to Cato scholars, you'll get to meet Randy Barnett, is among them, Professor Barnett, who's speaking at the program. The Supreme Court has embraced this principle in important decisions. Now, not as much many as we'd like, but something that was never considered feasible has been articulated in the courts a number of times ago. It was a wild idea, and it was promoted by people who work in this institution who made that possible. They were also active in our Second Amendment rights, which is a topic I've personally been very involved in. I've been a plain TIF, although I like to think I'm kind of sophisticated TIF, but uh, <laughs> I was a plain TIF in the case. <clears throat> and we won at the Supreme Court the vindication of a fundamental and enumerated right that had been completely banned in many jurisdictions in the country on the grounds that it was reasonable time, place, and manner regulation. And as we pointed out, that doesn't work. You cannot ban the practice of religion in the District of Columbia saying it's just reasonable time, place, and manner regulation. That doesn't work. Uh, I should say, we continue to fight them in the courts, and I'm still waiting for my concealed carry permit. They're dragging their feet on every occasion. They have zoned the District of Columbia as not suitable for any business selling firearms. It's just a zoning thing. Every square inch of the district, it is illegal to uh, engage in transactions, but we're fighting them nonetheless. That whole process was set in motion by Cato's chairman, Bob Levy, who personally funded the Heller case out of his own pocket. I was a plaintiff, and I said, Bob, I feel kind of bad. I'll put in some money. He said, no, I have to say, this is just me, Bob Levy, not the gun lobby, not some nefarious forces. And if I take a dollar from you, I can't say just me. It's me and some other people. So he paid for the whole thing out of his own pocket. And with Clark Neely from the Institute for Justice, a great organization that we work with, they uh, won that very important case. Bob is a man of principle. He, as chairman of the Cato Institute, is a very important figure. I admire him tremendously. He's not a hunter, a sporting shooter, a gun owner. NRA member. He doesn't fit the profile that our media likes to maintain of what uh, people who believe in the Second Amendment are like, missing most of their teeth and ignorant and uh, married to their sisters and brothers and so on. Um, he's, he's not like that. He is a man of principle. He also worked very hard against legal bans on same-gender marriage. When he was interviewed about his work on behalf of legalization, he was involved in a very important California court, ca court case. They said, why are you involved in this? <clears throat> Here were his words. My interest is in the Constitution, fighting for due process and equal protection under the law, period. His wife assures me it was not because he was hoping to marry another man. <laughs> he just believes in the rule of law and in the Constitution. And the principle of the presumption of liberty. Now, Cato, we believe words have meaning. 
They're not just what we want them to mean or what we think is convenient or good for our party or our interest. We fully reject the idea of the living constitution, which changes its shape with every new political initiative, sending out little pseudopods like amoeba to, amoeba to absorb parts of society. Such a living constitution has no determinate authority, no limits, and no meaning. Thomas Sowell put it very, very well. When you find out your constitution is living, you know it's dead. <laughs> that is what a living constitution is. It is a dead document. Now, past Cato University programs have focused on very particular things, Foundation of the American Republic, economics of free markets, uh, even we had one on rhetoric and persuasion. Uh, this one, this summer seminar, is intended to offer an intensive immersion in the ideas of liberty. It's on political economy, not just economics, which grew out of political economy, but all the sciences of human beings living together which encompass today what we would distinguish as economics, political science, sociology, jurisprudence, psychology, and other disciplines. And you'll get some of all of that in the course of the week. Now, the term, the science of liberty, is an interesting one. It's popped up in various languages to describe this agenda for the last 200 years, <clears throat> different times in different places. The name varies, Whigism, Republicanism, the most prominent word has been liberalism. And so if I say liberalism, please do not think I'm talking about the ideas of Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden's latest, um, <clears throat> I don't know how to describe <laughs> Whatever it is Joe, Joe Biden does when, when his neurons uh, are active. Um, I mean liberalism in the way it's used in most of the world and the way it used to be used also belief in limited government, in free markets, in individual liberty and responsibility. That term was taken over in the United States. And Joseph Schumpeter put it very neatly in his great history of economic analysis. He said that the enemies of free enterprise thought it wise to take its name for themselves. And so we had to come up with a new word, libertarian, which is now also spreading around the world. I've never been that happy with the word because it sounds like a genetic experiment gone wrong, uh, crossing a librarian with a libertine, and it's just a scary kind of image. So I usually use the word liberal, and I spend most of my time outside of the country, and liberal works very well. Now, we're going to see how these different disciplines work together. We believe in liberty as a political value and goal. There are other values in life. There's love, there's music, there's art, all kinds of other wonderful things. Those are important, but as a political value, liberty, we believe, is the guiding one. It's a central principle of a book that Cato published with Cambridge University Press a couple of years ago. I highly recommend it by George Smith. The System of Liberty, Themes in the History of Classical Liberalism. It's really a very, very fine book. I've known George for many years. When I was in high school, I paid him $25 a week to teach me philosophy. So we go back a, a long time. And $25 a week when I was in high school was enough to buy a car. Um, and in the book, he discusses ideology, which is a term often used pejoratively. Oh, that's just ideological. But he uses it in a substantive way to describe an interdisciplinary approach to ideas, and in this case, liberalism. Integrating the device, diverse perspectives of various disciplines into a comprehensive treatment. It says, the term ideology refers to a value-based belief system, an integrated system of ideas connected directly and indirectly to a primary value commitment. And in liberalism, or libertarianism, it's individual freedom. That is the primary value commitment. An integrated system is an organized structure of diverse ideas that are shaped in some kind of unity, some kind of self-contained unity, because they have a common relationship to this regulatory principle, liberty. So for Others, it might be a kind of material equality, or it might be power or purity, something like that, that motivates other ideologies, ideologies of purity or some vision of equality. Uh, but in fact, of course, we believe in equality too. We believe in equality of freedom. And it's the freedom that is the important regulative idea. An ideology provides a kind of conceptual framework that influences how we see problems and how they're connected. 
Take a very simple example. We're for liberty. Well, what is or is not an infringement on liberty depends on what one considers a person to have liberty to do. Is it a restriction on my liberty if I can't hit another person or take the person's money? Is that a restriction on my liberty? Well, it depends on whether I have a right to do that or not. Some have seen law as somehow in opposition to liberty. And we can see in popular discourse people do that all the time. There's too many laws. It's understandable. But I think they're confusing law with command, law with order, law with intervention. John Locke put it very neatly. He said the end purpose of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. I think he got that exactly right. For liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law. Freedom is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do what he lists, whatever comes into your mind, whatever you want to do. For who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? It is a liberty to dispose and order as he lists his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. It's liberty to do with what you want with what is yours but not with what is someone else's. It's not a restriction on my freedom of speech that I cannot go into a church, stand up, push someone off the pulpit, and preach my doctrines instead of theirs. That doesn't respect, restrict my liberty of speech, although quite often we hear people thinking that it does. Liberty of speech means in my church or my home, nobody can tell me what I may or may not say. It doesn't mean I can burst into your home and force you to listen what I want you to hear. So liberty depends on that to which you have a right, your property. Well, what's property? Well, to understand that, we have to turn to ideas of law, moral philosophy, jurisprudence, as articulated by lawyers, moral philosophers. Well, does it lead to order or chaos? That depends on your understanding of how order emerges. Many people believe order requires an orderer. Someone has to give the orders. That's their view of what order is. We understand that order can emerge spontaneously. The people can organize their behavior without a big boss. And the question is to understand how that happens. It seems so counterintuitive, and yet, when you think for a moment about all the institutions of human life, realize that's most of what life is about. The English language is a pretty good example. No one ever invented it, no one legislated it, no one made it. If anyone had, that person would have to be condemned as evil. <laughs> because people who have learned English understand letters like O-U-G-H, pronounced oog. Unless you put T and it's tough, C is cough, D is dough, P-L is plow, T-H-R is through, E-N is enough. That's really annoying. <laughs> Nobody would have invented that. It just grew. But it works fairly well. It helps us to coordinate our behavior. Now, none of these basic ideas of libertarianism just stand on their own. You have to understand one in relationship to the others. That's a science of liberty. And the study of that science is the work potentially of a lifetime, but we're not asking that. We have developed a crash course that takes less than one week. And you've got some really outstanding speakers. You can see the schedule. I'm not going to go through all of them but we have a wonderful lineup of speakers for you. And also we have uh, some uh, youthful uh, libertarian activists from Brazil who are here who are gonna tell us how they bring hundreds of thousands of people out to the streets uh, for liberty with the Free Brazil Movement. And as I mentioned, if you have a chance to talk to Parth Shah, Parth has done astonishing things in India. I'm, I'm so happy to be associated with uh, CCS. They are changing the lives of Indians by bringing them property rights and limited government and freedom of trade and respect for entrepreneurs and personal freedom. And they are substantially responsible for India growing and becoming wealthier. So that's, this work is spreading all over the world. It's an exciting time to be a libertarian. Not only in the courts, in politics, where we hear talk about libertarianism uh, systematically, but it also means we are being attacked every day. And my view is, bring it on. 
we are not afraid. Uh, one of my personal heroes, Radley Balco, who was a scholar at the Cato Institute, he's a journalist, he writes for the Washington Post, uh, he is an amazing person. He saved the life of a man who was on death row, who was going to be executed unjustly. He looked into the case, he said this man was railroaded, and he got that case overturned. The man was Corey May, who had been railroaded onto death row. Not many people can say that, uh, that they had done something like that. Well, he writes for the Washington Post now, and he recently compiled a file of articles on Salon Magazine and Alternet that were authentically rabid attacks on libertarianism. And he has 140 of them over the past two years, and it keeps getting bigger. Michael Gerson, Washington Post writer, neoconservative columnist, former speechwriter for George Bush, who gave us big government conservatism, uh, compassionate conservatism, largest entitlement programs in American history. He's run a whole series of columns. He says libertarianism is morally empty, anti-government, a scandal, an idealism that strangles mercy, selfish, a rigid ideology, and rigorous ideological coldness. All right. Chris Christie's New Jersey governor, Republican nominee, for, uh, running for the nomination for president. This strain of libertarianism that's going through both parties right now and making big headlines, I think, is a very dangerous thought. Uh, there's a lot more uh, going on. It is an exciting time, and as I said, I'm not upset by the attacks. I think this is a moment to clarify these ideas and stand up for these ideas. But also the global movement for liberty is growing rapidly. So I spend most of my time outside the United States and was recently with libertarian thinkers and activists in Sri Lanka, India, Nepal, Cambodia, Thailand, Australia, and Indonesia. And I can tell you that there's something remarkable happening globally. It's growing rapidly. And there's a reason for that. Our movement, our belief in liberty, is not like others. We believe in voluntary and peaceful exchange and voluntary cooperation on free markets. We believe in equal rights for every human being in virtue of being a human, not in virtue of your caste, color, race, language, uh, or religion. We believe in toleration of peaceful differences. And so we reject statism, chauvinistic nationalism, which should be distinguished from patriotism, uh, national, racial, ethnic, or religious conflict, war, conquest, and theft. And our principles cross borders very well. But the other principles, the principles of violence and conflict, narrow philosophies, although they may triumph in one place or another and wreak horrible harm on humanity, they are by nature mutually incompatible. This is one of the reasons for the collapse of communism. The various communist dynasties fought each other like scorpions inside of bottles. It's why fascism can never become an integrated global movement, despite all the best efforts and billions of euros from the Kremlin being spent right now to promote that. The fascists of Hungary and the fascists of Romania, to take one example next door, they have common principles, and they hate each other more than they hate us because they're the other people. Their principles rest on the philosophy of conflict. Ours rest on the philosophy of voluntary cooperation. And there's room for everyone in the world on our view. Now, like everyone here, I've been pretty horrified in the past decade about the American mega state. Big government conservatism, gigantic new welfare state programs advanced as compassionate conservatism reckless and unnecessary decisions to bumble into wars with huge consequences on our lives, the implosion of the much of the financial system after deliberate systematic intervention into housing markets, years of deliberate policies to lower lending standards, and then, of course, gigantic bailouts. Wars abroad, more and more intervention. I mean, many people don't know right now there's an entire military command dedicated to Africa. So our president right now is in Kenya. Uh, we have established AFRICOM. You can find out about it if you go to www.africom.mil and see the enormous military intervention that the U.S. government is now extending all across the continent of Africa. 
And of course, we are involved in wars in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and elsewhere, including undeclared war without congressional sanction in which our troops are um, involved in combat. We witnessed the growth of the surveillance state, watching more and more of what we do. Uh, I find that very disturbing. Our emails and phone calls have been gathered en masse in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. The nanny state has been energized. Tobacco is becoming essentially a forbidden drug. Interestingly enough, under a series of presidents, all of whom smoked marijuana, <laughs> one of whom forgot to inhale, one of whom admitted to having done cocaine, for which had he been arrested, he could have still been in, in prison on the day of his election to, United to presidency. And even criminalization or restrictions on vaping, which is inhaling water vapor with nicotine, which is increasingly being restricted around the country. Busybodies are trying to dictate what we eat uh, so that we'll be fit and healthy and of course, they're quite ready to dictate our choice of healthcare providers, as we have seen already. Remember the lies, if you like your provider, if you like your insurance plan, you can keep it. It was a lie, because they knew at the time it wasn't true. And they lied to us, and now huge numbers of people have had their policies that they did like canceled, including my nephew and niece, who were quite angry when the affordable policy they had turned out to be canceled and they had to pay substantially more for care they didn't want. And one could go on and on and on. In fact, I'm, I'm irritating myself. <laughs> How irritating this is. But it's gonna take a lot of work to undo that. Once people get used to these things, they take it for granted. I'll give you a very simple example and then pass on. Most people did not notice it. We now have an internal passport in the United States. Your papers, please, can be demanded of you. And it started out when you had a government-issued ID to get on an airplane. I remember you didn't have to have ID to get on an airplane. I was so happy to be in Australia recently. You just get on the plane with a ticket. They don't ask for any ID. What's the point? It turns out terrorists have and people who are gonna blow themselves up on the plane are not really worried about their credit rating afterwards. <laughs> so this does not protect us. And you can now be arrested if a policeman stops you even without suspicion of a crime and you do not produce ID, it is an arrestable offense. It turns out we just recently learned that if you don't put out your cigarette, you can be arrested and taken into prison. So call me old-fashioned. Whether her death was a suicide or not, I don't think Ms. Bland should have been in prison for a lane change and then refusing to put out her cigarette when a state trooper demanded it of her. Now, the Obama administration is doing its very best to warn people to the dangers of big government by doing what they do so well, which is to ignore the law. And think about it, the IRS scrutiny of Tea Party groups Astonishing coordination between the White House and the IRS and political activists, demanding lists of what the members of these Tea Party groups were reading, lists of their members, and more. And of course, the head of the IRS and the general counsel had many meetings in the White House, including meeting the president, which is simply unheard of. This was pure political manipulation. Something was going on there. And I won't mention, of course, the fact that uh, very few people are exercised by our Secretary of State redacting her emails. We have been told they were all turned over. They weren't. They turned over the ones they wanted to turn over and then erased the private server. And I wonder what it was we weren't supposed to know. I just wonder. I suspect we'll never find out. But it might have been the fact that she is Secretary of State was signing off on arrangements that required State Department approval involving clients, excuse me, involving firms which paid $500,000 to her husband for one speech, not bad work by the way, in June of 2010 in Moscow, paid for by a firm that was involved in this request. Uh, and then 
donated tens of millions of dollars to the Clinton administration, to the Clinton, pardon me, foundation. So something is happening here, and a lot of people are waking up to something is seriously wrong. One could go on about what's happening, but what we're seeing generally is, the, is big government being driven by a crisis mentality. We find ourselves in a crisis. It's a foreign policy crisis. It's an economic crisis. We seem to abandon rational thought. We're willing to overlook all kinds of crimes on the part of our rulers. And we are told not to ask questions. They know what they're doing. There's a syllogism. It's very important, the syllogism. It's called the syllogism of power. Something must be done. This is something. Therefore, this must be done. And it's valid as far as it goes. The politicians understand that dynamic very, very well. Crises are used to acquire more power on the part of politicians. And if you ask questions about it, you're unpatriotic, you're against the country, you're a traitor. Well, it's our job to ask those questions, to be willing to say, hold on. Is this the right thing? Is this constitutional? Is this legal? Is this rational? Is it moral? We want to know what is being proposed, whether it's actually justified, legal, efficient, and compatible with our principles and values. So that's what Cato University is about. It's going to help us to ask questions, to understand, discuss, and learn from each other, decide what is acceptable, what is not. For that which is unacceptable, inappropriate, illegal, immoral, and unjust, do something to do to stop it, to roll back what has been done, and to set in, process, uh, in motion processes to secure for ourselves and our posterity our rights and our liberties. That's a lot of material to cover, a lot of ideas to bounce around. We've got a week to do it. So here are a few tips on how to, how to make it the most rewarding experience possible. I'll start with something that's very important to me, and that's setting our watches. I have 2117. That's the time it is, according to the satellite. And what I like to do is set the watch not just to Eastern Standard Time, but Swiss time. And so that means in Switzerland, anyone who's ever been to Switzerland, the Swiss consider the Germans lazy. <laughs> uh, and when a train says it's going to leave at 8.42, it means at 8.42 it is rolling out of the station. It arrives at 8.40, the doors open for two minutes, people get off and get on, and it leaves. This is a big surprise to many people who visit there. Uh, and that's how we like to run Cato University, which means it says on the program, and all of you have your name tag here, that we're going to start at 9 o'clock. It means at 9 o'clock, someone will be at a podium, and that person's mouth will open, and at 9, sound will come out <laughs> at exactly that moment. Not 9.07 or 9.12, something like that, exactly in that time. So as we say, Pünktlichkeit ist unser Sprichwort. Our motto is punctuality. Uh, and when it says, and here's the other part, the part that makes it bearable, it says it will end at 10.15. At 10.15, we have snipers posted around the building. <laughs> the speaker stops at 10.15. You then have 30 minutes for Tai Chi, meditation, coffee, whatever you want. And at 10.45, we will start again. And the nice point is it actually makes it more pleasant when everything starts and ends on time. So that's the deal. I recommend getting there a little bit early so you can really start on time, 8.52, roughly. You can find a seat and get ready. Some of the students here are here on scholarship. Just a quick reminder, it was a very competitive process. The scholarship funds are donated, some of them by people who are here with us this evening. They could have done other stuff with that money, and they didn't. They spent it so that you could be here, so keep that in mind. I do vaguely remember being a student, and it was always hard to wake up. You have cell phones. The rooms have alarms. There's an alarm on your television. Open the drapes so the sun will come in and wake you up. 
and ask the hotel to call you. That should get it done uh, so that you will not be there late. We expect you to be on time. Now, I mentioned about being observed and so on, and I'm going to mention something that will sound discordant. We do encourage you to identify yourselves with your name tag. It's not required. If you don't want to, you don't have to. You can put a bag over your head with two little holes. It's okay. <laughs> but you won't meet all the nice people here. A, they won't sit with you. And B, if people aren't wearing their name tags, you don't get to meet all the nice, wonderful people around. So it's just helpful to wear your name tag so that people can see who you are and say, oh, Melissa, Tim, whatever your name happens to be. Avoids a lot of awkward embarrassment. Here's a little tip for me. When I get into my hotel room, this is, it's just a thing I do. I take my key, I remove this, and in one motion, I put them on the floor in front of the door. So when I leave, I don't forget them because they're sitting right in front of the door, my room key and my name tag. And so it works every time. I don't forget them, otherwise uh, I will. Um, if you have any problems or questions, ask for our colleagues. They have green, green name tags. They're wonderful, they're hardworking people, and uh, if it's a logistical issue, they can certainly take care of you. Breakfast will start 8 a.m. here in this conference center area. The conferences will be in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium on the ground floor. If you haven't picked up your uh, fabulous tote bag with all of the skincare products and so on <laughs> in it, uh, they have them for you. You can get it uh, in the morning when you come back. As I mentioned, we'll be starting at 9 o'clock uh, in the morning. Uh, after this, there are two events. So for the students here on scholarship and any other students who'd like to be part of hang out with the cool kids, there's going to be a meeting, and if you're here on a scholarship, you are asked to go to it. In the lower level in the Policy Center, my colleague Mark Hauser. Mark, would you stand up? There you go. This is Corporal Hauser. Uh, uh, we'll take care of that, and he'll just uh, uh, talk to you. And then the students can join all the rest of us at the Finn and Porter uh, bar and restaurant just down the street at the Embassy Suites Hotel. So thank you very much for your time, and I will see you tomorrow morning.